conversation about social and human services, including workforce development, eventually works its way around to complexity. These programs are meant to address complex problems, certainly, but that's not the complexity I'm talking about. I'm talking about the complexity of the programs themselves and the administrative systems we use to implement them. Being poor in America can be exhausting, with too many challenges and too few resources to meet them. We add to that exhaustion in the way we organize public programs to assist low-income individuals and families. A family with needs for food, housing, medical assistance, and of course job training can spend days making the rounds to various offices and agencies, providing the same documentation and telling the same stories over and over to case managers focused on single issues and programs. It's a waste of time and taxpayer dollars, yet we seem helpless to reform it, make it less burdensome and more efficient for all concerned. Today, we're talking with AEI adjunct fellow Mason Bishop, who has just published a new report that provides ideas for untangling, rationalizing, and improving how America's anti-poverty programs function. We're looking at the state of Utah's Department of Workforce Services, which, over the past 20 years, has evolved into an integrated work and human and social services program. Utah DWS provides clients with a no-wrong-door experience for qualifying for and receiving public benefits. It places increased self-sufficiency for individuals and families at the heart of its mission. So, Mason Bishop, thank you for joining us again. This is your return visit to Hardly Working. It's great to have you. You have just published a report through AEI. You work with us here as an adjunct fellow, which is much remarked upon. I meant to mention this to you. I had a meeting the other day, actually, where somebody at AEI said, who is this Mason Bishop guy? And I got to brag on you and talk about you and your knowledge and expertise. And anyway, you're back for a return trip to the podcast because you just published this report on something that you know well. In fact, you were basically present at the creation of this integrated workforce development human services delivery system, which is really unique in the country. And it comes from your home state of Utah. And you were right there at the beginning of it. So we're going to get into that. But the first thing I want to do is have you give us the Mason Bishop story. This is a podcast about vocation, career and work. And we want to hear not just about the work that you are doing, but how you got from where you started to doing the work that you do today. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, thanks, Brent. It's great to be with you again. I'm actually excited to hear that somebody asked who I was and you had a chance to influence them for the positive that they didn't already have their mind made up. So that's a good thing. It's um, always positive. Always yes, positive. Yes. Nice to know at a certain point in life, you can still have people think nicely of you. Thanks for this opportunity. It really is kind of Go back to the beginning of my professional career, which is always kind of a fun walk down memory lane. And it is true that it started, my career did start in Utah. I'm actually from the state of Maine originally. We moved to Arizona when I was 12. So we went from the backwoods of Maine to the deserts of Arizona when I was almost a teenager. And I ended up going to school in Utah to Brigham Young University in Provo. The story I like to tell is that one of my favorite movies, being a child of the 80s, was Wall Street mainly because there was a line in there that Charlie Sheen's character stated before he went to go meet Gordon Gecko, where he said, life is full of a few key moments, and this is one of them. And I've often reflected back that I think we all kind of have a couple of those in our lives that we see a fork in the road, and as Yogi Berra says, we take it. 
And I took one once. And what happened was that I was always interested in politics and government and that sort of thing. I was involved in student government in high school. And when I got to college in basically a little bit in the fall of 1987, I was in the library reading the student newspaper and there was a classified ad about doing Washington, D.C. seminars in the summer. So I went up to the office just to kind of check in on how do you do those sort of things? How do you get involved in internships in Washington, D.C.? And I actually, my freshman year in the dorms, the year before, the 86, 87 school year, I had a couple of dorm friends who lived in the same area as Senator Hatch in Vienna, Virginia. And Senator Hatch, of course, was the Utah senator at that time. His reelection was coming up and his second reelection was coming up in 1988. And so I happened to say to the person at the Washington seminar office, hey, do you guys ever do internships for campaigns? And he said, no, we don't. But it just so happens that on Monday nights, the campaign manager, his name was Bud Scruggs. Bud is teaching a course here on Monday nights. You ought to go just say hi to him. So as Charlie Sheen did, I had my Gordon Gecko moment and I decided to go meet Bud outside of the place where he was teaching courses. And we met and I said, hi, and I'm interested in getting involved in campaigns and Senator Hatch. And we had a nice conversation and hit it off. One of the things I'll never forget as we were leaving, he said, Mason Bishop, he goes, you know, that's a great name to run in Utah. <laughs> that's a really good name. <laughs> and that really funny. kind of me. But the key to that story is that what Bud did is he said, look, we're going to be having a fundraiser. It was in November of 87. He goes, we're having a fundraiser at Little America Hotel in Salt Lake. If you're really interested in getting involved, come up and volunteer for that. And I think what happens probably, Brent, is most times is kids, especially younger kids, don't really act on that or they don't want to kind of roll up their sleeves and put in the free time and the labor and the other kinds of things you need for things to pay off later on. But I did act on it and I went and I volunteered for the fundraiser and checked people in and it was just sitting out the table with name tags and that sort of thing. It was kind of grunt work, to be honest, help set up, help tear down. But because of that and because I had a good attitude, the people who were the campaign staff at the time took note of my attitude and such. And then what happened is a few months later, they actually were hiring for that summer and fall campaign staff to work with different county people and Republican Party folks, because Hatch is a Republican. So because I'd done that volunteer work, because I went and met with Bud, I got hired. And the pay was $1,000 a month, which doesn't sound like much now, but man, that was a lot of money back in 1988. <laughs> I, mean, I thought I was rich making 1000 bucks a month as a poor struggling college student. But it was a great opportunity because I went around and I met a lot of people and got involved in politics. And as Bud said to the group of us after the campaign, he said, just want to let you guys know, once you're involved once, they'll always come back to you. And it really is true. And what essentially happened with that, and the reason that story is important, is because one of the campaign managers working with Bud Scruggs was a man named Mike Levitt. Mike was an insurance person. He had an insurance business with his dad at the time, but he was also a political consultant in Utah, a young guy. And Mike Levitt happens to run for governor in 1992. And a friend of mine from the Hatch campaign ended up kind of being his camp, Mike's campaign manager. And so in December of 1991, I had started my master's degree program that fall in 91. But in December, I had the chance to take Mike down to Carbon County, to Price, Utah, which is actually one of the few Democrat areas in Utah. And I actually 
This was another kind of fun story. We actually were meeting with the gentleman who was the county party chair down there. And we stopped at a store before going over to this guy's office to get a drink. And the guy was in the store, but Mike didn't know it was him. But I did from the 88 campaign. And so Mike wasn't even going to know to say hi or who he was. And anyway, I happened to do the quick, hey, Mike, this is da-da-da. We're about to go say hi to him at his office, you know, kind of thing. And I, I had the wherewithal to clue Mike in because I could tell he didn't know this was who we're about to meet with. And so, you know, it's those little things that you do that help build credibility in employers' minds and in the people you work for. Anyway, so I ended up working full-time on Mike Levitt's campaign. He becomes governor, and I started my full kind of real professional job in January of 1993 in the Department of Administrative Services. Let's pause right there just for a second, because I want to just draw people, especially young people who might be listening to this and thinking about their career, back to a couple of key points that you've already made, which is, it's true that networks matter, right? Who you know and who knows you is important in life, right? And bigger your network is, the more opportunities you're going to encounter in life. However, what I think is really interesting about your story is that you went out and started building your network and really putting yourself in front of people to say, I'm here, I'm interested, I'm willing to work hard. And I think that's underappreciated, that kind of sort of personal agency and persistence in kind of pursuing your own interests, right? It's so easy to like have a bad experience or maybe you don't succeed the very first time and people like abandon these things too quickly. So I just wanted to really, you know, like focus in on that point for a minute, because I just think it's really underappreciated in professional development that if you want to do something, no one can do it for you. But there are a lot of allies that you can create in your professional journey. And I think that that, the story that you're telling really helps to illustrate that. So let's go back to where you were about to launch into, which is welfare reform in Utah in the mid-1990s, because that's where the story of this report really takes off. Yeah, well, I would emphasize too, Brent, that the idea of networks, I think, has a nice segue, frankly, into our conversation maybe a little bit later on, which is that how we do workforce development services in the United States. Because I think one of the reforms that, frankly, and one of the sort of fundamental changes we need to make is that typically on the public workforce system side, if you walk into a one-stop center, you're going to get kind of the usual traditional sort of help with the resume. How do you do job search? Those types of things. And for quite a number of years now, I've really thought about how do most people get their jobs? And it really is through networks. And it's through prior experience and people you meet. And I think we need to fundamentally change how we do business, how we help, especially people who don't have access to those networks. And I actually do believe kind of the fundamental difference between, say, people who are low income and people who are middle to higher income are access to networks and access to opportunities. And so it's really hard to get that access through the usual drop, you know, 100 resumes in and hope that somebody bites. It really is more about you've got to help people. And I think that becomes incumbent upon those of us who've had some level of success. You know, I know through LinkedIn and other things, anytime a young person reaches out to me, say from BYU or somewhere else and says, hey, you know, help me out. You know, do you have any ideas and stuff? I always answer those people back. 
because I really feel that it's important for those of us who have established professional careers and have networks to be willing to share those networks with people who have a good work ethic and are out, you know, beating the streets and trying to do the right thing and want to start their own career. And I think that's really important. And not to get too personal in this podcast, but I think you did that for my son, to be honest. You know, he was out of college. He had done some work for me. I knew you and I, when you were at ICF and knew that ICF was doing some hiring and, you know, I referred him to you and then I stepped back because it's up to him then to follow up from that point on. And he did. And, you know, again, now he's still with ICF now, three years into it. So yeah, in his case, I have to say the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree um, because your son was and is such a standout. In fact, I think if I recall correctly, he was like rookie of the year at ICF, which is a pretty big company, but he got, he was recognized for being one of these new hires that really stood out. And so, yes, the connections help, but then you have to have the other part, which is, are you self-motivated? Are you focused in your work? Yeah. And I was going to say that is really part two. The moral of the story is in my whole entire life, I've always been able to work for less than what I thought I was worth. If it was an opportunity, a stepping stone or an experience type opportunity. And I think a big mistake people make often, even when they have networks, is sort of feeling like I need to make a certain amount of money. And if I don't, then they don't recognize how I can contribute or my background or that sort of thing. And I've just never approached it that way. I've always just approached it that every opportunity, even when sort of the opportunity didn't work out well for me, I look back now and I said, there was a reason why that opportunity made me a better professional. I either learned something about the business of consulting, for instance, or learned something more about education and training and how a college will you know, handle their work and that sort of thing. So anyway, I just think that it's really important to sort of humble yourself at times in your career and realize that, yeah, I'm probably worth more than I'm making, but it's important for me to gain this experience or to, you know, develop this work ethic. So, yeah. Okay. So let's get into the yeah. report a little bit. Just provide a little bit of an overview. What was the purpose of the report? Why did we do it? Yeah. So real quick, I ended up working at the Office of Family Support in Utah, which became part of Governor Levitt's movement toward workforce and welfare reform in the 90s. And the capstone of that effort was the creation of the Utah Department of Workforce Services which officially became operational July 1st of 1997. It did so through a couple of years of legislative effort, culminating in 1997 with two pieces of legislation, one that sort of officially implemented the department, and the second brought the welfare reform and the Office of Family Support into the Department of Workforce Services. And so that launched in 97, and I was the first public affairs director for the department, and then ultimately, short story ended up back in Washington, D.C., became Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Employment Training Administration, and the rest is history. So our paper really takes a step back and looks at, given all of the discussion around workforce reform and employment, and especially in this COVID era, how do we help people and how do we help workers? That's a question you and I are getting all the time from folks. What should we do? What kind of recovery is it going to look like? And I think the purpose of the paper really is to demonstrate that each state and each community has its own unique sort of demographics and needs and employment base and such. But there are principles around which 
workforce programs that are funded by the federal government can operate. And those principles are really embodied in the Utah Department of Workforce Services, not only during the time I was there in the 90s, but really since that time in its 20-year history, a continual evolution of further integration and further bringing together of programs as the state, as state policymakers, as governors, as legislators, as others have realized, hey, this makes a lot of sense. This is a way to better support workers, better support families, make program accessibility much easier for people. That evolution has occurred over the last 20 years. And that's really what our paper looks at. What are those principles? Why is it different? What does integration mean in terms of program integration and financial integration? And what lessons can be gleaned from Utah's experience that are applicable to other states and other state agencies? So you and I went out to Utah to sit down with the staff out there and really go in depth into that experience, kind of interview them. Just a quick story that I think really illustrates the power of what Utah is doing, which is the famous Uber driver story. You know, everybody's got an Uber driver story. You know, I I show up in Salt Lake City and, and get into an Uber and the Uber driver, very outgoing character. He starts asking me why I'm in town. And I said, well, I'm in town for a meeting to talk about workforce development. And he said, oh, you're going to the Department of Workforce Services. And I thought, hmm, that's really interesting because in most cities, you would be hard pressed to find anyone who could tell you what the name of the agency was that did that kind of work. So I started asking him about it, and he he described his experience of as somebody who had moved from Louisiana to Utah at the urging of his brother because he was really struggling in Louisiana. He was drug addicted. He had family problems. He had all sorts of issues. And he said, they can help. If you come to Utah, they can help you. And so he came to Utah, and he got connected to the Department of Workforce Services, and they did help him. They helped him get all of the things that he needed in order to get his life back on track. And that's really the point of when we talk about program integration, that's really what we're talking about. It isn't an abstract idea. It's actually the way people live their lives. They don't have individual problems. They have a whole bunch of problems and they're all tied up with one another. And here was this guy who was a living example of what it means when government works effectively around complex social and economic challenges. And I just, it was a great setup for our day with the people in Utah who are so humble and so kind and so nice and always say, no, 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 don't praise us too much. But I, that really struck me because what are the odds that I found the one, the one person who had been helped? Zero. There's a lot of people who have been helped through this integrated program delivery system. Yeah. And I think the interesting part of your story is, again, I think if you can encapsulate everything Utah is doing into sort of one sentence, it would be that people only have one door that they have to enter to get a whole bunch of different services, employment, financial assistance, if they're low income and other poverty type programs are available, housing assistance, Medicaid eligibility is done at the Department of Workforce Services. And the other part of that one door approach is what happens when you walk through that door? What happens is you're not put in a line where you apply for a bunch of different programs. What happens is you meet with an employment counselor who assesses your needs. And then the eligibility is done 
in the back room, so to speak. It's about developing that employment plan, that self-sufficiency plan, and then the department figures out for the person what programs they're eligible for, how that person's services are funded. It's not incumbent on that person to sit in a line and fill out a bunch of paperwork to do all of that. And I think that's probably the most important thing that Utah does. You and I both have gone to lots of different communities throughout this country where you literally can be in the same town. And if you want to get employment help at the one stop, you go through one door. If you're low income and you need to apply for welfare, you go through another door. If you're disabled and you're eligible for vocational rehabilitation services, you go through a third door. And there may be even a fourth or fifth door. But at a minimum, most towns in this country have three doors. Well, in Utah, you can go into any town in the state of Utah and it's one door for all of that. And that's so important. You know, if, if you think about the experience of being poor, you know, life is usually pretty challenging as it is. Lots of different issues, lots of different problems. What you don't need is to be shuttled around a town to various offices, retelling the same stories over and over again, re-justifying the requests over and over again. It's exhausting being poor and it's we aren't helping people by adding to that challenge through unnecessary, duplicative, expensive bureaucratic systems. Well, we haven't even touched on what we do to employers. Yeah. When we have employers, you know, I may be a mid-sized employer in a, in a town somewhere. You know, let's say I have 100 employees. I have quite a bit of employment going on and I've got four or five different people hitting me up for jobs or hitting me up for internships or apprenticeships or those kinds of things. And again, that's all done through one effort in Utah. And the other interesting part about that, Brent, too, is obviously in the West right now, we're seeing a lot of movement. Utah is one of many states that, again, when I was there at Salt Lake Community College in 2009, I was in an economic development discussion where they literally, one of the five pillars of Utah's economic development strategy was attracting businesses from California into Utah. <laughs> and we're seeing that's, that with Texas. That's everybody's <laughs> economic development strategy. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's like the Idaho, Utah, Texas, they're all, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a free for all right now. But with that said, though, that kind of strategy operates better in a, in a situation where the Department of Workforce Services is the one agency that partners with the economic development folks around talent development and talent strategies. Utah has a 4.5% unemployment rate right now during COVID-19. I don't think that's an accident. Now, that's due to a number of factors, clearly, but part of those factors are that they have a diversified economy in many industries, including high-tech. They have economic development strategies that are aligned to their workforce development and their education institutions. It's part of that entire picture. And I think the Department of Workforce Services plays an important role in that entire picture, which is that they are seen as the single source on the public sector side of talent development, working in partnership, obviously, with the colleges and universities in the state to develop that, help develop those talent pipelines. But they are the one place where you go if you need help, just like your Uber driver knew. And that's just not the case in most states in the United States, unfortunately. Yeah. So we've got this system, and we should point out that this didn't happen overnight. This was a long process that, you know, it took a lot of, you might comment on this a little bit, like what are the predicates necessary for a state to achieve 
this kind of integration aside from, oh, we passed a couple bills. It takes a lot of effort to push these agencies together. Well, and we heard that very distinctly when we were there in November too. Not only does it take a lot of effort to get it launched, it takes a lot of effort to maintain it. You know, the staff told us very clearly that this is not easy. But as they said to us, it's not easy, but it's the right thing to do and it's worth it because it's what's best for customers. It's not what's best for government necessarily. It's not what's best or easiest for the government workers, but it's what's best and easiest for the employers and the individuals who need assistance, the job seekers and workers. And I think that's a really important point to make. It clearly takes political will. Again, it doesn't matter the political party. It's not politics that way. It's the political will to, frankly, government has a lot of inertia. Government has a lot of traditions and histories, and this is the way we've always done things. And I want to protect my job, and we want to protect this agency, and we do things differently, and you don't understand us, agency over there. And so it takes a lot of small p political will, and it really all starts with the governor. Governor Levitt, if it hadn't been for Governor Levitt, this never would have happened. That's just the bottom line. And again, another quick story I can tell you. I was not in this meeting, but I heard what happened. During the summer of 96, we, that was the plan. 1996 was the planning year before the 97 legislature. And there were a number of planning committees that were put together. Well, one of the planning committees, of course, was governance. And at the time, just like as it operates now, the Job Training Partnership Act was primarily a program that was being operated locally through the counties. And so there were a couple of county commissioners that were more boisterous about we're going to continue to run job training programs through even if this new agency is created. Well, Governor Levitt, that was not his vision because he realized that that kind of splintering, which again is part of the problem now with state-run programs versus locally-run employment training programs, it just causes inefficiencies and splintering and silos. And so it got to a point where the meeting process wasn't getting us anywhere and a decision had to be made. Mike Levitt called in, invited every single county commission in the state of Utah to come to a meeting. And my understanding from the meeting, again, I wasn't there, was he posed a question to the county commissioners. He said, either I'm going to run it, the state's going to run this department, or the counties are going to run all the programs. We're not going to have it be splintered. It's going to be one or the other. Just realize that the county runs it. You're, all the liabilities you're taking on, you're going to take on food stamp error rates. You're going to take on unemployment insurance error rates. You're going to take on, you know, that you're going to be liable for all these things that currently the state is liable for if something goes wrong. And my understanding is there was a vote and it was almost nearly unanimous. There were only apparently two county commissioners that voted for the counties to keep their ballots said, no, we're going to turn over the state. And from that day forward, that debate ended. And we were able to move forward then in designing what the new department is going to look like in preparation for the 97 session. I always tell that story because it takes that level sometimes of political boldness and just, you know, getting to a head. And unfortunately, I think sometimes in politics and states, I see this all the time. Governors don't want to upset county commissioners and county commissioners want, don't want to get in a fight with governors. And, and again, this isn't even a political party thing. It's, it's more of a governance thing. And, you know, at some point, you got to just get everybody in the room and say, look, folks, we got to do what's best, not like who's getting the money and what does it mean and who's getting the jobs and that sort of thing. And again, I credit Governor Levitt. And if it had been for him and then Lieutenant Governor Olean Walker, who kind of helped with the day-to-day -day legislative stuff, she, she had been a former legislator and had a lot of credibility 
a building's now named after her that the Department of Workforce Services is housed in, and she did a lot of work as well. And so it starts there. And then after that, it's you need to have really good agency leadership. The first executive director that I worked for, his name was Bob Gross. He'd been CEO of First Interstate Bank in Utah. Governor Levitt was able to attract him out of the pri- a very lucrative private sector job to take on. And I learned a lot from Bob. He was my first mentor, actually. I learned a lot about business and a lot about how to manage effectively. I learned a lot about organizational cultures. You know, we brought in four to five different organizational cultures in 1997. And that's tough. I mean, people were uh, underappreciated toughness there. Oh, I mean, it's really it, tough all in the same state, but they do think people do things differently and they're very attached to the way they do their work. Well, it's even more than that. You know, we had five administrative regions and people were keeping tabs on which one became the region. Because, again, one of the beauties of consolidation integration is you don't need three regional managers per region anymore. You only need one. But from an organizational culture standpoint, people literally like, well, okay, they picked an OFS person in North and an employment security person in St. George. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's and in the in Bob Gross's management team, there's three OFS, but only two employment security, only one JTPA. And that's not fair. You know, I mean, it literally gets that petty sometimes. But again, what I learned from Bob is you have to just keep moving forward with what's right anyway. So there's this initial rush of legislation and rush of activity agreement on a single statewide agency rather than splintering. And then over the years, what Utah has done is migrate more and more of these agencies under this umbrella, right? And so that's been part of the maintenance work that you were talking about. Okay, we've got TANF and we've got workforce development here, and now we need to move housing in here. Now we need to move Medicaid in here. Now we need to move vocational rehabilitation, you know, whatever, all of these programs that need to get pushed over. So that's been another 25 years, basically, right? Yeah, 20 years. And I do want to mention one in particular, the most recent, which in 2016, they moved vocational rehabilitation out of the Department of Education to DWS, which anybody who knows these programs knows that is tough. I mean, programs for individuals with disabilities tend to be kind of the most fought over and protected and kinds of programs, and for good reason. I mean, you know, you have some of the most vulnerable people who need assistance and employment. So people feel very passionately about that. Well, this is the interesting statistic. You know, when we were there in November and I said, you know what? Because the legislature did this with no fight at all, which is unheard of when it comes to vocational rehabilitation. I mean, when I was at the Department of Labor, we talked about, we even kind of quietly started talking about, should we try to move vocational rehabilitation programs over to the Department of Labor from the U.S. Department of Education? The minute the advocacy groups got wind of it, it's like I showed up to give a speech one time and I just got like slings and arrows (laughs) sent at me. It was not an easy meeting. And I, so I said, how did you get, do this without any fight? And they said, because of a couple things. One, there was some mismanagement issues going on in vocational rehabilitation. But more importantly, they did a legislative audit and, and 70% of the vocational rehabilitation customers were also customers of Department of Workforce Services. Brent, that's another really important lesson to all this that everybody needs to understand. A lot of times the government bureaucracies treat this whole situation like, 
a workforce innovation, a WIOA customer is separate from an employment service customer, separate from a TANF customer, separate from that. Somehow these are all different people and they almost never are. It's always the same person who's having to go through again those three doors. When the state legislature realized that one, we've got some management issues at the Department of Education with Voc Rehab, and two, from a customer service perspective, 70% of the customers are also going to DWS for services, then they did the right thing. They said, let's move over to DWS. And so in consolidating these, there's so many payoffs to consolidation, right? It's simpler for the customer. It's simpler for business. One of the things that is also simplified is a lot less staff, a lot less bricks and mortar maintaining buildings and separate offices. And all of those efficiencies allow government to put more money into actually delivering the needed services for the customers, right? This is a way of it's a kind of forced projection, you know, that you're shifting money away from administration and into services over time. Yeah, this is a very, very critical point you're making, Brent, which again, the Utah officials emphasize with us. A lot of times these kinds of efforts are framed in quote unquote cost savings. And the Utah officials wanted us to really realize that that's not the right way to think about consolidation or integration. Because yes, there are cost savings, but those cost savings, what it really means is that you can provide more services and better services to more people. And that becomes a really important principle to realize that that the built-in inefficiencies we have in many places in our workforce development systems serve to hurt, of course, the taxpayers who are paying for all of that. But probably more importantly is it's hurting the people who need the services the most because those inefficiencies are being absorbed in other parts of the organization and not in direct services to people, whether it be training, assistance, job assistance, financial assistance, or supports, you know, any of those kinds of things. You know, one of the real weaknesses we have in in our WIOA Title I programs, and we've documented this in a couple of our AEI studies, is that there is a historical trend that very few of those dollars go to quote-unquote job training, yet everybody calls it a job training system, and it's really not a job training system because very few of the dollars go to job training. Well, part of that is because of the inefficiencies that are built in that mean that too many of the dollars go toward least costs and go toward duplicative administrative personnel costs and other kinds of things. And again, if you create what Utah has demonstrated is if you create those efficiencies, you do have more money for training. You do have more money for services that help support somebody while they're in jobs. And that's something we can't lose sight of because again, is that they also suffer from housing insecurity and food insecurity. And a lot of times there's maybe not the most stable family method. I had a bachelor's degree making three eighty-five an hour, you know, when I my first job with the state of Utah was making twenty-three thousand a year. And so you have to be able to provide people without educational attainment and those kinds of professional and work experience opportunities who may have to work at ten dollars an hour at their first job. They may need some additional supports that Utah can provide. I want to give listeners kind of like fair warning, because if you think it's been wonky up until now, we're about to go up to the setting number 11 on wonkiness here, because I want you to describe this really unique relationship 
that the state of Utah in its welfare and workforce and associated programs under DWS, how the state of Utah, first of all, relates to the federal government, and then second, how it grounds through its accounting mechanisms, because this is it. This sounds like it's so arcane, but this is so important from a policy standpoint that we understand how tough we make it on state government to interact with the feds and the way that Utah is overcoming that. Yeah, Brent. You know, one of the great things about our podcast is we have something for every type of audience member. So if you're a math whiz, you're going to love this. Or maybe if you've just hit pause and you're ready to pick up at bedtime and you need a good melatonin (laughs) supplement, here we go. So just like a private sector business that may have different sources of revenue that they have to account for, in public sector accounting and in federal accounting, you have what are called cost allocation requirements, which simply means that you build the right federal program for the cost that that person worked on. So if I'm working with a welfare customer, I build the TANF program. If I'm working for a non-welfare customer who needs employment help, I may be billing the employment service program at the Department of Labor. So it's all about making sure you build the right program for what's being worked on, for the activities that are being undertaken. So you can imagine that in an agency like DWS that is almost up to a billion dollars per year, that's a lot of programs and a lot of billing and a lot of tracking and kind of the simplistic way that people do it. It's almost like you could do it like a lawyer bills out where you're keeping track of time in 15 minute increments. But you can imagine when you have hundreds of staff working every day, how inefficient that is. You know, you have a paper thing. So essentially, the easiest way to think about it is Utah, starting in 1997, got the federal government to agree to a really unique process. It's called random moment time sampling. Every month, it used to be phone calls, now it's emails. They send out a certain number of emails to staff and ask them, what are you working on right now? And the staff report on that. Those results all get uploaded and they are all done through a statistic methodology that essentially means that once all that information is compiled, the right programs are billed at the right proportional amounts. So it's very simple to the DWS worker way to account for their time and to, and to build the right federal program and the right federal agency. That's the simple version. The other really neat part of this is that you have to submit what's called a cost allocation plan to the federal government. And typically what happens, you have to submit a plan to the Department of Health and Human Services, and you have to submit a plan to the Department of Labor, and you have to submit a plan to the Department of Education, et cetera, et cetera. Starting in 1997 and continuing on now for 20 years, Utah has one federal agency that they submit a cost allocation plan to, which is the Department of Health and Human Services, And that one federal agency is responsible then for working with their sister agencies to gain approval for Utah. So when Utah has an amendment to their cost allocation plan, which they said they usually have about one per year minimum, they submit that amendment to the Department of Health and Human Services, and then that's all Utah has to worry about. They don't have to contact five different agencies and get five different answers and all that. The Federal Department of Health and Human Services does all that work on their behalf. It is a very, very efficient way to interface with the federal government in a 
department that has multiple federally funded programs coming from multiple federal agencies. I'm just going to completely nerd out here because this is this is like from my standpoint this is like the promised land for the way that we administer our federally funded programs. Whenever you have a conversation with a state or local level human services, welfare, Medicaid worker, you immediately hear about the administrative burden and siloing between programs and the craziness of all of these conflicting reporting requirements from agency to agency. And I do it one way for DOL, and I do it another way for HHS, I do another way for education. And people have been grappling with this problem for decades, you know, calling for simplification, calling for super waivers that would permit this integration of the funding streams that would allow states more flexibility and would reduce inefficiency and make everybody's life easier. And we've all been wanting and thinking we needed more legislative authority. But what's so interesting about Utah, in order to get to that simplification, we needed more legislative authority. But what's so interesting about Utah is that they just did it under existing waiver authority, and they've maintained it for 20 years now. It's not easy. And I don't want to make this sound like this is simple. I mean, truly simple. It requires a lot of work and a lot of dedication by a lot of people to make it work. But it is so much better than what states and localities are experiencing in other areas of the country. Well, you're right, Brandon. Again, it is a lot of work. But again, the question, the important question becomes, whose work does it become? Instead of the frontline workers work it being where they're having to track their time, they're having to report their time, they're, you know, and having had to do that, it's very time intensive. Even being a consultant on my own, having to invoice, you know, track what I did that month for the invoice. I mean, it takes a fair amount of time, right? And they feed up there. It's the opportunity cost of spending time on that is now being spent again with customers directly. And that time and that burden is now kind of centralized at the state office level with grant accountants and other kinds of people who then work with the feds, who work with the contractor, who's doing the RMTS, the sampling every month, you know, all of that. So it, it, again, it comes down to those opportunity costs, really, of who's spending time doing this. Is it more administrative people who aren't interfacing, or is it with your people who you need to be on the front lines there. And that becomes really important. And again, it also brings these programs together because there's all this burden, burdensome, this and that and the other thing. And it just demonstrates that, no, there are solutions. If there's a will, there's a way. If you want to do it, we've shown that there is at least one state to figure out how to do it. Mason, you have been very generous with your time today, and I appreciate it. Looking forward to the next chapter in this story, because it isn't over. It's never done. We have to just keep working on it. And really grateful to have you as a partner in helping to promote this idea. Yeah, thank you, Brent. It's been a pleasure and look forward to good work in the next year on these topics. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.